0: Business Power
1: Hour. Welcome to the Business Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And a lot of rational perspectives coming up tonight. We'll be talking with Dr. Daniel Israel. He is a GP in Johannesburg, right in the center of the third wave, giving us some insights into what this new Delta variant of COVID-19 means for his practice and for people in Gauteng generally. Then we pick up with Peter Major on the deal of the day. Anglo-American and BHP Billiton have sold their shares in a huge Colombian mine, Coal mine, that is, to Glencore. Why did Glencore buy it? What is the sense there? Should you be following Glencore into it? They'll be getting their money back in two years. Well, even if you're buying coal, you can get your money back in two years. Pretty good stuff. And then, of course, this being Monday, David Shapiro is our guest co-host. And also in the program tonight, we'll find out all about the currency with Andre Sedia from Treasury One. And then Lord Peter Hayne is at it in a big way, taking on the Guptas and wanting to know why the multinationals have been allowed to get away with murder. All that coming up in the program to this evening. But first, before we go there, it's time for the markets.
2: Rob believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes.
1: Justin Rowe Roberts might be in Cape Town, but he still keeps watching the markets and uh, did so again today, Justin.
3: JSE All Share Index was flat at sixty six thousand two hundred. The rand was slightly weaker against all the major currencies to fourteen rand twenty four cents to the dollar, nineteen rand seventy nine cents to the pound, and sixteen rand ninety seven cents to the euro. Gold is up at one thousand seven hundred eighty dollars an ounce. Kruger rand is trading at approximately twenty five and a half thousand rand. Brent crude is down at seventy five dollars a barrel, and Bitcoin is tr- is steady. At around four hundred and ninety thousand rand per coin. If I have to look through the major highlights of the day, some of the retailers coming off true words off nearly five percent for the day. Same with Massmart, uh, the healthcare groups, uh, life healthcare down, and the financials down badly. Uh, some of the heavyweights, naspis and Bats, up strongly, uh, keeping the jsc All Share Index flat for the day. What I've also done after Mr. Ramaphosa's announcement yesterday. Uh, announcing the new level four restrictions, obviously some sectors are, are again badly hit. That being hospitality, uh, alcohol, distill slightly in the red, just lower than one percent. Famous Brands down three point three percent. We know they're uh, in the restaurant business and City Lodge down five percent. So the, the the ones that are hard hit. We're from Mr. Ramaphosa's announcement last night. Interesting
1: the point you make there of City Lodge. You'd have thought by now they would have discounted the apocalypse, but clearly not. Uh, It was an apocalyptic announcement as far as hospitality is concerned last night. no, No more hotels and restaurants, my goodness.
3: And Alec, it seems to be the same industries every single time that gets hit, but that's as a result of the virus, I guess. What I have read about City Lodge and generally the hotel chains is this is probably the best time for them to go into a lockdown of of this kind of sorts, given that it is in the middle of winter. Things are a little bit chilly and then tourism uh, would be slow regardless so rather get this third wave out now let's get our vaccine rollout going and the likes of the city lodge toll group should start booming again come the summertime and hopefully we can get some tourists some foreigners back in this country
1: it's strange isn't it when you're an investor you've got to look long term and yet these day-by-day impacts on share prices sometimes get you to scratch your head maybe uh, the brave would be buying
3: that's exactly why I was so interested, in it. And, and I said these names to stole famous brand City Lodge. I was listening closely to Stephen Nathan, who we have every Tuesday on our group, uh, on the Business Power Hour, and he was saying that markets look 12 to 18 months ahead. So I just wanted to see how this kind of announcement or these announcements would affect these restaurant chains, these hotels, these these distillers, and, and they have somewhat, um, although it's only going to be for two weeks. Or we say that now, we have heard it all before. Let's hold thumbs that it
1: is only for two weeks. Justin Rowe roberts is, of course, with Biznews.
2: This market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
1: Well, time now for our Flash Briefing.
2: South African business owners are bracing for a financial crash after the government tightened restrictions to limit the spread of COVID-19. Wendy Elberts, CEO of the Restaurant Association of South Africa, says the number of restaurants forced to close their doors have reached the thousands since lockdown started last year and that President Cyril Ramaphosa's announcements may be the final blow to many eateries. Ramaphosa warned on Sunday that the more contagious Delta variant has been detected in five provinces and indications are that the third wave, which is currently engulfing the country, could last longer than 15 weeks. New regulations include a ban on alcohol sales and sit-down dining, a new curfew and a prohibition on travel in and out of Teng for leisure purposes. The Beer Association of South Africa, which represents the Craft Brewers Association, Heineken and SA Breweries, has also warned of more job losses, business closures and loss in revenue for the national fiscus. President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration is facing widespread criticism because less than 1% of the population has been fully inoculated against COVID-19. Minister in the Presidency, Kumbudzu Nchaveni, says the government has done its best to manage COVID-19 and is not to blame for the country's dismal vaccination processes. Nchaveni is quoted as saying, Your US, your Canada, your European countries have been hoarding vaccines. But DA leader John Steenhuisen has responded by urging South Africans to remember the fanfare where Ramaphosa took delivery of one million AstraZeneca vaccines and later sold them. He says these could have protected 500,000 individuals from severe disease and taken pressure off our healthcare system. South African consumer confidence declined in the second quarter after the government ended increased social welfare payments and temporary relief measures for workers. A quarterly index measuring sentiment fell to minus 13 in the three months through to June from minus 9 in the previous quarter, First National Bank said in a statement. The index has now erased gains that sought return to pre pandemic levels earlier this year. That was your Business Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit BusinessRadio.com.
1: Dr. Daniel Israel wrote a uh, cracking story. Uh, which we published on BizNews. Daniel, I'll have you know, it's still the top red story at the moment on BizNews. People love to hear from the front line. If the rest of us are getting fatigued by the whole uh, COVID pandemic, surely someone like you uh, must be feeling doubly so.
4: So Alec, we get we get a lot of our strength through the inspiration of helping people. I mean, that's as, as uh, cliched as that sounds, when you help someone to get through COVID and then their family comes to you and you help them and it goes from person to person, you actually get a lot of strength in seeing the positivity. Uh, it's not all about the complications and the, the, the deaths.
5: And
1: your practice here in Johannesburg, or are you actually a Joburg boy?
4: I'm a Joburg boy, born and bred. I um, don't know if that's a claim to fame at the moment of what's going on in Gauteng and Joburg, but um, I've always lived here and uh, continue to practice here. So I suppose that gives me a good infrastructure in terms of connections over the years, et cetera. But I've always been a Joburg.
1: Take us through what's been happening at your practice with COVID and more recently during this third wave that's hit Gauteng.
4: So, Alec, COVID comes in a lot of – it really is a wave um, pandemic. We find that in certain months the hysteria around COVID is low. And, you know, interestingly, I would see a, I could see a patient a few months ago I wouldn't even consider sending for a COVID test. And today if I see the same patient – I would send them straight for a COVID test. And that's all because of the waves and the uptake in numbers. So, you know, what parallels that is at the moment, a lot of what has been over this wave, just a rise in anxiety, just like we saw before the first wave. And um, and probably an equal amount, or if more, if not more, queries as to whether people could have it, have been exposed to it, would get sick if X, Y, and Z, rather than people who actually do have it. And we still have a lot of people who actually do have it. So, you know, it's very hectic at the moment.
1: How bad is this Delta variant?
4: So there aren't studies at the moment to show that it's a more serious form of COVID, thankfully. Um, There's even been some speculation that it might be less serious than the Beta variant, which is the South African-originated one. But it certainly is more contagious. So we're seeing people who have had less contact and limited contact who are still getting it and still passing it on. And what I've said on a couple of other T- talks I've done is that when you have a lot more people getting the same severity of a disease at the same complication rate, you're going to get a lot more sicker people and, you know, deaths, unfortunately, etc. So from, from a public health perspective, it's more serious.
1: What are the hospitals like right now? Can you get your patients into hospital beds?
4: With a lot of difficulty. I mean, it's talking to your first, one of your first questions as to being Having infrastructure in Johannesburg because I have doctors I work with all the time and you know being a GP in Joburg I think that we've managed to phone around and source the correct um, hospitals etc but I think that even with those with, with that infrastructure we often find we ourselves in a position where someone needs admission and we can spend a long time trying to find them a bed and certainly my colleagues who work in EMS on the roads we have lots of stories of paramedics So you know, even mates of mine who will sit with patients outside a hospital for four or five hours waiting just for something to open up.
1: I suppose the unenviable task of those who are in the hospital deciding who to turn away and who to bring in. I understand that elderly people who have comorbidities are not given beds because the chances of them surviving are not as high as perhaps someone younger.
4: So thankfully, I don't think we've got to the position yet where we're having to triage in hospital patients away from getting a bed as a whole. Although obviously there's a triage in casualty as to who gets the bed first, but certainly from a critical care perspective, in terms of ventilation and ICU, when there's a and there, are, there have been no beds in in critical care in in the last couple of weeks, as one gets vacated, it gets filled. And at that point, you know, I'm I'm grateful that I'm not one of the clinicians who have to sit with a list of five names in front of me and decide who will be the lucky person to get the critical care bed. But that is happening, yes.
1: During your studies, you would have been with a number of people who are now having to make those decisions. How are they taking it personally? I think it's a very
4: emotionally difficult time that they're going through you know it's interesting as a doctor you almost put on your warrior clothes or your you know your 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 doctor uniform and you go forward and i think that we certainly see that icu clinicians and intensivists cope amazingly the question to be to be asked is after this pandemic or in the times when it isn't as rough as it is at the moment you know, w- will they have a conscience that sits in their head and nibbles away and says, you know, should I have done this, should I have done this, that, could I have admitted that person? And certainly if I was in that situation, this would be a big worry for me. It has it has insidious effects that one doesn't see straight away.
1: And we know that last night President Ramaphosa told us we're back to level four, but in your article, which uh, you wrote last week, you were saying that actually we should be taking more responsibility and personally going to level five. Just explain that argument. So, I mean, at that point,
4: it wasn't a technicality in terms of four versus five, but I certainly think that on a personal responsibility level, um, we, we see as GPs that the predominant way that COVID is spread is through social interaction between people, not on surfaces, not um, through contamination, despite what what the public think. And therefore, without without closing down the economy, the the first thing that one can do to try and curtail the spread is to be as absolutely vigilant as one can in terms of personal interaction. I mean, my my own father lives less than a kilometer away from where I I work, and and I see him absolutely rarely. I haven't seen him in a few weeks now because I, d- I think that it's a personal responsibility not to expose other people and particularly um, vulnerable people to this virus. And my article spoke to the point that, you know, irrespective of what the government decides to do, as individuals, there's nothing stopping us from locking ourselves down from a social perspective. It's difficult. I take into account mental health. I believe that as soon as the lulls in the waves happen, people should be out there and trying to repair as much as they can. And I must say at the same time, Alec, that I don't think that being in open spaces like parks and you know, outdoors is much of a risk. I think you can go to the park within your bubble and you can do pretty well without exposing yourself to any risk. But in terms of social interaction in your home and your business and, you know, the, the, where people feel that they're careful and the outside, but when they're at home, you know, he couldn't possibly have it. She's been as careful as I am. That's a big problem. And there we should be having a level five mentality.
1: The third wave, according to Ryan Noach at Discovery, is likely only to finish or to peak in the first uh, week of July, which would suggest next week still. Is that consistent with what you're seeing in your practice?
4: So we haven't seen any drop in numbers so far, even with the extra measures that government's taken in the last few weeks. Um, Obviously, we're only one day into this new level four lockdown, so hopefully it will make a difference. But so these consistent I mean remember also that there's a there's a reproductive number of a of a virus, and with this delta variant, which is thought to be the predominant variant at the moment or the growing one um the pre- reproductive number is higher, which means that people are more likely to infect one another so even though we might clamp down on behavioral measures, we might still see. Uh, almost paradoxical rise in infections. So I think what uh, Ryan Notes is saying is probably true, that we we certainly aren't yet at the peak in Ghateng, and there's a high likelihood that other provinces will follow after Ghateng.
1: And if you do test positive, what do you recommend to your patients?
4: I think the first tip would be don't panic, because people always look at the terrible stories instead of understanding that the vast, vast majority of patients with COVID-19 recover fully, and become have some immunity for some time afterwards. So, so, so really, there is good to be seen in the situation, as strangely as that seems. Secondly, I would say it's all it's about looking after yourselves, taking a good vitamin regimen, not dabbling in medication that is inappropriate. Taking antibiotics, for example, at the beginning of COVID has no benefit whatsoever, and definitely reaching out to a healthcare practitioner or organisation where you can who you can trust because you can't be your own barometer as to how well you're doing. We see people who think they're doing wonderfully and they're doing terribly. And we see others who are really doing fine and they find every day thinking that they are about to expire. So the point is that it's about having someone to be your, your compass.
1: And for those who've had uh, their first, take this Pfizer vaccine, had their first vaccine and they do for a second one, but they get COVID in between. Do they no longer have to go for a vaccine? Not to bother about a vaccine anymore because they now have the immunity. So, so
4: each—I um, don't know if I call it an exposure. But each event, each is a is a is a, a feather in the cap of immunity. So, what the NRCD has said, and certainly immunologists and virologists internationally, is that having COVID is already one. Um, one, one goal in terms of immunity. Having a, vac- a single dose of a vaccine is another goal in immunity. So the question you're asking is if you've had one dose and then you get COVID, you've now had two doses of immunity, do you need more? I, mean, I think the jury's still out on that and different countries are doing different things and thankfully, or maybe not so thankfully, because it would be better if we'd already rolled out our vaccines. But in South Africa, we haven't had many people who have had COVID and have already had the opportunity to have their second vaccine. My gut feel at this point would be to still have it, but again, that is not evidence-based, that last comment, and it will be shown and I'm sure recommended by the NICD over the next few weeks.
1: Your last recommendation for your your patients or those who aren't your patients who are still scratching their head about this virus? I think that at the moment our biggest
4: tool is avoidance. So I think that if you to play the the correct, clever behaviour, you can avoid COVID-19 which will reduce the tremendous amount of pressure on the healthcare system. The overall tool uh, or goal is immunity, which means that we really, really have to push for vaccination, but that obviously isn't up to the patients. So I would say that in deference to, to the other people who, are, who, who may be at risk, and even if you don't feel that you're one of the people who could be badly affected over this time, it's about extreme vigilance because there's a huge wave. When the wave goes down, it's then about, Balanced vigilance, where you're going to be balanced but still venture out in the world so that you don't go nuts before we have perhaps another wave. Hopefully not. So I would say safe behavior for now.
1: Peter Majors with Mergen's Corporate Solutions, our go-to man when it comes to anything to do with commodities and a big announcement this morning. But, but before we go there, Pete, I don't know, did you read the Sunday Times this weekend?
5: Tell me what I missed.
1: You missed a huge picture of Ivan Gleisenberg. Hey, David, they called him the nearly mm. Olympian because, well, you know about Gleisenberger. Mm.
6: Uh, no, I know the, him very well. Yeah.
1: Berger, um mm-hmm. Why was he nearly an
6: Olympian? Well, he, um, he was a walker. And uh, I think as a, as a child, or sorry, as a young athlete, I think he might have got his South African colors. But he never quite qualified, I think, uh, as an Olympian in the Olympic walking team. But uh, he was a super athlete. And, you know, walking is, is is a strange art. I mean, it's a very, very strange sport. But I know him from his running days. And Ivan used to fetch me on a Saturday morning and make me run with only the best from Fordyce to Motta. And uh, I can attribute Ivan as and I know what he is. Like a, I, I, he's like a leader. You know, you know what I mean? And and uh, Peter will know this. You know, Cookie, Coyman, you name anybody in Cape Town of my age, I'll take them on only because Ivan used to train me. And we ran the wondrous golf course, and we ran, <laughs> you know, we used to run. And he doesn't
5: leave anybody behind. We but don't have well, like to leave anybody behind. Alec, what about Lisa Stain's article on financial mail? That was pretty comprehensive describing mm. Ivan Glassenberg, huh? So now, now to work this one out, so we get Glassenberg in the Sunday Times, we
1: get Glassenberg in the financial mail, then we get today's announcement. Where Glencore <laughs> is acquiring uh, the the 33 stakes in uh, that BHP Billiton and Anglo American own in the Cerrejon mine in Colombia. Come on, I, I mean, how bright do you have to be to see that this whole thing is uh, has been falling. I mean, they didn't just wake up one morning and say, Ooh, let's write stories about Glasenberg. Oh, uh, Glencore, wake up and say, "Oh, let's do a deal with Anglo and BHP." <laughs> oh.
5: Well, look, to be fair, Anglos and BHP are disinvesting. They have been for a year or so plus on the coal side. And Ivan's been pretty clear they're not going to run out and disinvest if it doesn't make economic sense. And he understands the long term. So this has been going on for a couple of years. The arrows are pointing he's not going to change. He's probably not going to add new stuff. And you say, well, he has added new stuff. Now he's taking on theirs. But – I think that's that's fair. That is an anomaly. You know, he's not out buying new ones. He's probably not going to open any new ones. But I've always said all these mines are closing far too soon when the sunk costs are in there. You know, that that's the tragedy of our gold mines. We probably had a trillion rands worth of gold infrastructure, and shortsightedness on the DMR and the government has ensured that is lost to all of humankind forever.
1: Pete, uh, my former co- colleague who now has mining MX, David McKay. To me, he's the best by far mining journalist in South Africa, and he he writes today on this story that the payback time for Glencore is two years. Can that be right? Yeah,
5: just absolutely. Absolutely. I like, it. they are getting out. Of, that's why I think it's a win-win. They want out at almost any cost. And Ivan does things for economic value. He does things like a good fund manager. You know, what's my IRR? And yeah, I think he's getting a good deal on those. Now he's going to have full ability to manage, to hedge, to barter. Um, he controls it a hundred percent. Um, I think he couldn't be happier and. Shareholders are really going to benefit on Glencore by him getting those stakes. Two years. That's extraordinary. How big a mine is this? It's large. It's very big. Uh, it's over, I think it's 30 million tons. That's that's how slack I am on my homework here. <laughs> but but how would it compare with the South
1: African mines that Angler sold into uh, Tongela? And I ask this because the South African market cap now of Tongela, uh, the 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 mines that Anglo had in this country. Uh, the market cap there is 5 billion rand. The value of Serejian on today's transaction is, well, two and a half times that, 12 and a half billion rand.
5: So it is yeah, it, is it that tonnage, much bigger? Yes, it is that much bigger. You know, I think all of Anglo coal, you know, now Tungela, I, I think their tonnage is 15 million, 15, 16 million. So here, here's a mine it's just doing more than double all of Amco's tonnage in South Africa. It's a big mine. Up in, have you been there to it? No, 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 I haven't.
1: Because according to the information, it's on the border, or near the border with Venezuela, which might also be quite interesting because Venezuela is not the kind of place people have been
5: investing in recently. But if it opens up, oh my gosh, did you see the latest? Oil reserves for countries. Venezuela is slightly ahead of Saudi Arabia. You know, work out the richness. You know, whether you go to South Africa in 1902, when we had 4 million people and we had more minerals than America and Russia put together, or you go to Venezuela that is infinitely smaller than Saudi Arabia and it's got more richer oil reserves than Saudi Arabia. You know, how nature has endowed some of these countries with wealth that they haven't been able to capitalize on it. What
1: a pity. Uh, Venezuelan,
5: the political situation <laughs> causing the
1: trouble mm-hmm. there.
5: It is so rich,
1: Venezuela. Mind-boggling rich. <laughs> uh, Pete, just going back to this, if you also contrast Anglo-American and BHP Billiton, who are run by managers, whereas Glencore is run by owners. And, and what I mean by that is a, a big chunk of Glencore shares are owned by glassenberg and co do you think that would have had something to do with the way that they view the world on this transaction
5: i do alec yes i do because i think i believe i think pretty more similar to ivan is that when it's your asset whether it's an old car in the garage whether it's a a hunting rifle. You've got it. You fixed it up. You acquired it. You know what the thing is worth. You've got this personal attachment, and you're not going to give it away below what the market value is. Whereas, when you're managing assets, how often do we hear managers say, "This might not look like it makes sense um, economically, but it's a strategic move." I mean, I've heard that come out of ARM and XARO so many times, you know, and and th- yeah, that's not owner speaking. An owner, he wants to get value for every nut and bolt in his workshop, for every acre, for every tree he's planted. And look, you can be stupid, too. You can say, I planted that, and, and I'm going to get this value, or I'm going to sit and watch it die. But that's that's not a rational fund manager. I think Ivan is a good asset manager. He knows there's multitudes of ways of getting value. You trade it, you you sell it, you um, run it, you know, you operate it. I think... I think he's, he'd be a very good fund manager. And, and yeah, he, they're owners. They're running it like it's their family business. And, and boy, if anybody knows what market values are, you know, where can I sell this coal? Do I need to blend it? Which country can I get it into without too much hassle? He does. but it's still, His company does.
1: It still seems like an incredible transaction for him getting your money back in two years Uh, what what would possess anglo-american and bhp bulletin to offload is it just this whole esg uh uh, hype that's going on now that that would influence them to that degree that
5: they give it away yes and also look at when goldfields unbundled and they had some big assets. They had some large assets, mainly the gold mines. And start looking at the price that they gave their non-core assets away at. And those were the ones like the coal, the chrome, And Northern Platinum. Look at what they gave those things away at. And then what most of us didn't see is when Miranda was first formed, that came out of the remnants of Goldfield's assets. I don't know how much of this is confidential, but if you saw what they gave hundreds and hundreds of mining and prospecting rights they'd accumulated over a hundred years to, just call up Rudolph Debrain at AMET because he was one of the buyers there. And these mining houses are famous. When you're cleaning out things that aren't high profile earnings to you. There's not a lot of emotion letting them go at below what you th- could have got for them later. Maybe. Yeah. There's no emotion. You know, this thing is a pain in the butt. It's affecting their ESG and, and it's not adding that much to my bottom line. So it's a very easy way of just discounting. I have to get rid of it. For strategic reasons. Jeez. We've said, we've seen that so many times, all these big mining companies, um, But,
1: David, if you are taking a Warren Buffett philosophy of being a co-owner in these companies, Mm -hmm. then who would Mm. want to be a co-owner alongside managers who just dispense of uh, their assets on the basis that uh, BHP and Anglo-American have done here?
6: Well, I I think they just want to clean it up. They just do not want to sit – at the boardroom table, and, be, and justify uh, shareholders coming and question um, their their uh, investments in coal is becoming more of an an issue than than an investment. And uh, for that reason, they want to focus on on their iron ore, their copper, their other assets. And Ivan has has noticed. You know, he said this is not going to be a quick transition. You can't go from coal to uh, alternative assets, to alternative energy, wind power or solar power overnight. It's going to take time. And during that time, prices will probably go up because no one's adding more um, production. So I'm going to make money out of it. And what they've done, if you read their statement, and I haven't gone through in detail They actually identify we are going to be responsible. And it's better that we own 100% than other people come in and own the smaller amounts of it. And At least, you know, we can manage ourselves out of this responsibly. Because I think, Pete, I think this is 2030, 2034, this mine is finished. So, um, you know, uh, another 10 years or so, um, it's a wasted asset. And they will generate huge amounts of cash for themselves over the remaining life of this mine.
1: The question, Peter, has to be if you are sitting on the sidelines, you haven't invested any, uh, into any commodity shares yet, and you're considering looking at these three, to me, from the conversation you've, uh, we've had today, I would certainly be going with Glencore rather than Anglo or BHP. Mm-hmm.
5: Well, not just because they're trading at a higher P.E., but why are they trading at a higher PE? Because the market on the whole thinks they have more upside, thinks they're going to give a better rate of return over the next few years. And even though Ivan's going to be out of there, he's still going to be, what, the largest shareholder. So you can bet he's as long as he's the largest shareholder, he's going to make sure they keep doing things that make investment sense. And, hey, Tungela – Maybe it's too short term, but look at the Tungela share price, Alec, from when we talked last time. You know, you had this famous short seller saying you're lucky to get out at 20 because it's going to zero, you know, and now the guys are bidding 38. But when you see the earnings and divs going to come through, it's almost criminal to sell it below 35. Uh, Hmm. Yeah, the coal power plants are going to close down a lot slower than the existing coal mines and the new coal mines that virtually aren't going to be around there. So, as Dave says, that's going to support this coal price for quite a while because it's going to be limited supply. You <laughs> so know, I
6: also think that that sorry, Alec. You know, the the, the chap who's taking over, Gary Nagel. I think he he was Arvin's man in Colombia for a long time. So I think he knows the asset very well. I, I, I've, I've got to check up, but you know, my uh, you're belief probably is right. That, yeah, I think he was yeah. the man, you know. He was he was stationed there as so many of the traders who work for Glencore all did time in various areas. But need to check up on that one. Is he South African? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, this is a South African old boys club, you know. This is <laughs> they might have different nationalities now, but they're uh, they're all from around here. You know, Ivan was Hyde Park, Hyde Park High. <laughs> so uh, I don't know where Gary went. And look, he started in coal as well. Huh? That's that's the story. He knows that if you know, you remember he bought Daker here, which was, I think, his first mine that he purchased here. And during his tenure in those nineties, I think he did quite a few coal deals, uh, which made his name. You know, which made his name at Glencore.
5: You got to be a buff now, like it, it's like trading diamonds. There must be five thousand different kinds. It's it's not like trading base metals, copper, lead, zinc. Gold, you know, even the PGMs, but coal, my gosh, you know, there's so many discounts, there's so many penalties, there's so many grades, qualities, of sulfur, uh, it, which is a trader's dream, you know, it gives them more reason, more opportunities to make an extra percent, two percent, three percent, and and you need wide reach, you know, this coal can, I know the market that this coal can go to that will even get a premium. That market, no, we're going to get a discount. In fact, we won't even be allowed that market. Um, yeah, it's a very different commodity. No substitute for experience and and, and battle scars.
1: David Shapiro is our guest co-host uh, every Monday evening. Well, Dave, we've had a good conversation with Peter Major uh, about – the big deal that has been done there Mm. with Glencore taking out the shareholding in the Colombian coal mine, Serejon, from BHP Billiton and Anglo-American. tells us a lot about the different approaches of those Mm. three. Uh, Peter was, I suppose, hedging his bets a little, but would you be buying Glencore on the the basis of that transaction?
7: I think
6: I like all three for the various exposure. So I think you've got to have BHP, you've got to have uh, Anglos and Glencore simply because of the different areas in which they're invested. You know, Peter is still around, or hopefully, but I, I'm, I'm one of these, I'm very optimistic on on where commodities are going to go. And, uh, you know, while Peter's still listening, there's, there's something that is that I read on the weekend, which was uh, in the Telegraph, in fact, about the amount of investment that is being forced on motor manufacturers because of the demand of consumers, not the demand of manufacturers, not the demand of uh, governments, but the demand of consumers to go into electric vehicles. So, that itself is triggering. You know, a huge demand for battery power and obviously copper and other areas as well. And this is big stuff, Alec, because every motor manufacturer has to retool their their factories. So, you know, I'm just interested in, in where this is going. Am I being too optimistic or, um, you know, is this, uh, you know, or, or is it going to fizzle out?
1: Well, it's an interesting so, point. In this morning's mm. Wall Street Journal, our partners in the United States, they had a a really good piece on commodities where some smart investors are saying, okay, we've had a pullback in the prices. Mm. Now it's looking a lot more realistic. In fact, many of these commodities are looking very cheap relative certainly to where they were just a few weeks ago. But when you look into the future, they are now starting to mm. offer great potential. Now that's quite a statement coming from a publication like that. Peter Major is indeed still with us. Pete, uh, the the let's not go commodity supercycles. Let's just look at commodity shares generally, because South Africans love commodity shares, and from cert, at certain periods of time, and we all love to be buying them at the bottom before they uh, they rush
5: ahead. Are we seeing one of these
1: opportunities today, or was it past us?
5: It's not an easy call, Alec. They they've all pulled back from their highs because the commodities on the whole have pulled back from their highs, but. these shares, BHP angles particular, you know, they're discounting that commodity prices fall a lot more, a lot sooner. And we haven't seen the rampant, crazy expansion and acquisitions. Like we've seen every darn cycle since I was a kid in the early sixties. We just haven't seen it. It's almost nowhere evident out here. It's an amazing, it's like they listened to Ivan last time. um, All these shares turned down. So, these companies are less risky on the downside of a cycle than I've ever seen them before. Cause usually they are so stretched with debt, with huge capex problems with acquisitions. So when it turns down, that just compounds the, the reason the shares fall. They don't have that. Now they're all maximizing their current asset base. Uh, they're doing their best on cost control, but You are investing after close to a two-decade run in commodities. And just look at the 70s. Commodities didn't even run for 10 years in the 70s, but they fell from 1981 until 2001, you know, up seven, eight years, down 20. We have had pretty much an 18-year up. So we could easily just slide down another 10 or 20 years. But if we slide down gradually – these shares won't drop much, but they will trade on these continue low PEs. You know, look at the S&Ps on a 45 PE and what angle and Billiton on 14th. You know, so the market's really saying, we think commodities are going to fall a lot harder and you guys are going to do a lot worse. So it's a value, it's, value proposition. Yeah. but they, It's hard to say they're going to grow here. You, know, you can't really grow a commodity share if that commodity price is slipping down. David? And that's all it needs to do is slip. It doesn't have to fall off a cliff. It just continually slips, 2%, 3% a month, 1% here. That's my concern is, is that commodity prices, you know, 18 years, and, and these are loony prices. You know, how can iron ore justify being over 100, let alone 200? You know, 80% gross profit margins. <laughs>
1: David, I know you follow uh, the exponential companies, so the technology uh, companies, and uh, you've, you've, uh, been, you've done very well out of uh, the uh, likes of ASML, I think. Is that right? Uh, AS, uh, ASML from, from the, the, the Netherlands. Netherlands. Um, Amazon, Apple. Uh, uh, would you be selling any of those to put them into commodity shares? Because that's a really big call to do it right now.
6: No, I think they complement each other. I just think that we're going into um, an area where you hear, listen, I'm not over enamored with Biden's uh, um, infrastructure plan. You know, 600 billion is uh, spread over 50 states is not going to do much. But he did do a bipartisan deal. And I think this is going to trigger a lot more investment in commodities. And, you know, China has been the main driver of commodity prices. I just see it balancing out. But I'm particularly interested in what's going to happen in maybe the rare earths, maybe nickel, maybe copper, you know, four electric vehicles. Maybe it's not that big because I don't know what, what amount of commodities go into motor cars, but what I do see is a mammoth rush. To build gigafactories or whatever they call now, I don't even know what that really means in the UK or wherever to build batteries because the demand for batteries is going to be so big. So I see with that a different type of investment that we're going to see in, in commodities. So I think there's a nice balance there that, that that we're going to participate in, you know. And, I, you know, what Peter says is is we lived through, and I think I've repeated this on the uh, program before, and Peter was there, where, you know, in the 70s and 80s and those periods, you had to be a pretty good miner to survive. And I don't mind that. You know, I don't mind if we go into a period like that uh, rather than commodity prices falling in a heap. So I think... We can find areas around in, in the infrastructure development area and in commodities where I think we can do pretty well. And Ivan's giving us a lead, you know, he, he's, he, he's going for it. Well, so, he, is, he is
1: indeed. And uh, mm-hmm. or by doing a deal like this on a very quick uh, payback period. But Dave, uh, last week, Pete Felyoon was saying there certain pockets in the JSE that are starting to mm-hmm. attract mm-hmm. him. Are you feeling uh, similarly
6: enthused? Yep. I am very much so, and you know where it is. It's mining related, because we're digging more holes and we're doing a lot more blasting. Whatever it is, it might not be evident, but it's going to come across. In you saw Invicta's results out. I've still got to go through them in great detail. Hudco starting to point in the right direction. Even companies like Robex are moving in there. Barlow World, who sells yellow metal in Mongolia and in Siberia, you know, selling Caterpillar. Um, so I, I think that, to me, is a lot more attractive than the banks and retailers. You know? And these companies are just being chucked away for nothing. You know, um, Pete made such a good point about an owner being aware of every nut and bolt. And I think if you go to the nuts and bolts of these businesses, they're just being given away for nothing. You know, uh, Oslo Middle was trading at, I don't know, a market cap of maybe a billion or two billion six months ago. You know, it's up 400%. But, I mean, it was crazy the amount of money that's gone into that. that I, I like what Peter said about sunk costs. You know, if you look at the sunk costs in these businesses. So I think there's rich picking in some of the small caps. You know, we, we're we all index huggers. We love to hug the index here. Gaspers, process, British American tobacco. But if you build a little portfolio or you build a portfolio at some of these businesses, you're not going to be disappointed. So give us some some
1: uh, insights. Give us some stocks that we can go and do homework on.
6: Well, those are the ones that I mentioned. I think I think anything that sells... You know, sells a machine that makes a noise or uh, needs big tires, and that, those are the kind of companies. I think you know, <laughs> it's not my area. I'm an accountant. I've got soft hands, but I think I think those are the the businesses that are going to benefit. You know, where you've got some uh, people who know how to use a shovel or know how to use a jackhammer. I think uh, are the businesses that we're going to uh, are going to benefit.
1: So if I give you these five, uh, tell me yes or no. Robex. Yes. Eudeko. <laughs> uh, yes. Invicta. Yes. Bolometkov.
6: I don't know enough about Bolometkov. Is that Pete? Is uh, that
1: Peter? Yeah, uh, Peter but Yeah, he's yeah. been with Bolometkov mm-hmm.
6: since I've been around. Uh, mm-hmm. And keep uh, going. Iteltal, Afrimet? Af- oh, Iteltale. Yeah, Iteltale. It's a great company. Just so well run. But not noisy. Uh, for, for
1: Unless you go and no, cause a no, noise at the tile shops no. stores.
6: Yeah, you've got to know how to tile. That's why. And that's for do-it-yourself builders. You know, Again. Which uh, which am not on. Um, and, and Afrimat. I know good companies. And uh, we, F, Af- sorry? match. Always. Brilliant. Great uh, company.
1: Wilson Bailey.
6: I don't know. I don't know. I'm still a bit concerned about construction businesses. You know, they're a bit mixed. I would, uh, Robex is on the roads and I think it's also in construction mining. Uh, So, yeah.
1: The last one of all of them, 1st rand.
6: No, (laughs) I don't like
5: banks.
1: (laughs) This Currency Focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. André Selyas is with us for our regular update on the currency markets. André is, of course, with Treasury One. Uh, André, having a look around at uh, the commodity cycle, we're hearing more and more that there could still be a significant upside on commodity prices. How, How would that impact the value of the RAND?
7: Well, South Africa is a uh, commodity rich country and we are one of the largest producers of commodities uh, in the world. So obviously when commodities do well, uh, then the export levels uh, increases, the flow of currency increases from exports. And that simply means that we get more currency uh, impacting positively on the trade balance, impacting positively on the currency.
1: So all round, when commodity prices go up, it's just a direct correlation with the South African rand strengthening.
7: Yes, absolutely, it's a direct correlation, uh, and as I said, it's simply because we're exporting a lot, uh, and then there's more dollars coming in. So that ever little words, those little words of supply and demand, more supply of dollars, more sellers, less buyers, positive influence on the currency. <laughs>
1: So in this respect, the RAND would be almost a price taker because if commodity prices go up, then the RAND itself is just going to follow.
7: The RAND itself will just follow. Uh, Obviously, it is also something that one needs to take into account that there could be timing differences because companies could uh, actually go into the market at specific times and do hedges. In other words, at certain times they would sell more, Uh, And then in the times that the price of the commodity is actually high, they would sell less because they've previously sold the dollars in the forward market.
1: We've been talking a lot about the rand dollar over recent times. What's been going on against other currencies, though, Uh, if you like, the basket of currencies against which the rand can be measured?
7: Well, for a long period, the rand's actually done very well against the euro. It's done very well against the pound. I mean, we saw the pound... Uh, very close to the 19 levels we saw the euro ran down to the 1645 1650 levels in the last week or so we have seen that retreating somewhat uh, against some of those major currencies and that was simply because those currencies uh, actually depreciated quite a bit against the dollar but the rand depreciated more In other words, the percentage of depreciation of the rand against the dollar was more than what the other currencies depreciated. Uh, And hence, we've also lost a little bit of value uh, against some of those currencies. But we are still trading at relatively strong levels, and I don't think anything to be concerned about at this stage.
1: So if you're an importer, say, from Japan, uh, would you change your strategy at the moment, given what's happened recently?
7: No, not really. I would uh, retain with my strategy Uh, and the strategy, as we've said over the last couple of weeks, you know, when the RAND was down at the 1360, 1370 levels, it presented excellent periods for the importers to come into the markets. Um, And with the uncertainty that lies over our heads at the moment, and we can speak about that a little bit later, uh, it's still... A time for the import is to make sure that the levels of cover is sufficient for uh, the very short period one month, two and a half, three months uh, because a, a lot can happen in a very short period of time. And you talk I about that in mm. that strategy against all the currencies.
1: Now, you, you talk about the uncertainty. We, well, most of the nation watched Sir Ramaphosa last night at eight o'clock uh, tell us that we're back into level four. He was very somber. Uh, we've got at least two weeks of very, very restricted economic activity as a consequence of it. Is this something we should be paying attention to when we're having a look at a longer term from the currency's prospect?
7: Yes, it is. Uh, it can, if we continue on this path that we are, it could have very detrimental effects on the economy. Uh, it could push our economy uh, back into negative growth again if this continues. Uh, So we have to take note of that. It's very, very important. Uh, Our president looked very, very tired last night. Uh, Somebody mentioned that to me and I said, if I keep on talking to people and asking them to, you know, wear masks and social distancing and nobody wants to listen, then I also look tired because it's a little bit of a headmaster talking to the children at school and nobody listens.
1: Yeah, but how do you change it? How do you, how do you change the thinking of people who've now had over well over a year uh, of the dreadful COVID coming through, and for most people, uh, they haven't a got it, and secondly, those who have got it, only a very small percentage of pretty older people have uh, succumbed.
7: Yes, that is true, but you know the older people that died are still dear and loved ones in our families uh, i 've spoken to two people this morning, and in both cases, they told me that they have positive cases in their households. You know so this is not far away anymore. This happens to people close to us. we know about it, we see it, we hear it and and really, I mean it 's all over the news it 's all over social media. Uh, the the number of infections, and and still people don't listen. Uh, And if we only pay a little bit of attention and be a little bit more cautious, uh, then we wouldn't have these unnecessary closures. Uh, But as long as people are not going to listen and not going to abide by any of the rules, we are going to have a problem. And I was speaking once again to a few people. You know, the first thing that they say is how can they come and circumvent and come around some of the regulations? For Pete's sake, if that's your endeavor, to to see how you can get around the interventions that are being taken, then we're not going to solve anything. And then people should not complain. If the economy doesn't do well, then they should not complain if things go in the wrong direction. But that was not the question. The question was impact on the economy, a severe impact if we do not pay attention to what happens around us.
1: But when you project that onto the onto the currency and onto the economy and, and onto where we might be going in future, from what you're seeing right now, Andre, is this something that could be impacting or, or something that exporters and importers should be paying attention to?
7: Absolutely. Uh, they should be paying attention to it. If we go into further lockdowns, and we'll know that in two weeks' time, uh, this could have a very, very negative impact on the currency. Uh, it could be, have a very negative, negative impact on markets as such in South Africa. And that will directly influence the currency. It will directly impact on inflation rates, uh, on petrol prices. You know. So the man in the street will really suffer if this currency goes back to 17 and 18 levels uh, because an economy needs to close down. Uh, It will impact on unemployment figures, but all of that will hit the currency. So exporters might now sit back on the cautious side and wait a little bit. Importers might run in and buy some cover in anticipation of further lockdowns. And that in itself, you know, these moves in anticipation of what can happen can drive the currency to weaker levels. Uh, And that will impact, as I say, further down on inflation on interest rates etc so a very very negative period uh, that we an uncertain period that we're now entering into again
1: and just hoping that the penny has finally dropped
7: we can only hope that and we can only hope that people actually do go for their vaccinations Uh, I know that tomorrow I'll be standing in the queue for my second Pfizer vaccination and there's no ways that I will be missing it uh, and, and I can only hope that everybody in this country uh, listens to the calls that are being made, pays attention to it. And if they are up for vaccination, you know, get the vaccination uh, and, and stay out of hospital. It does not say that you can't get the virus and can't cannot get sick. But it simply says that if you've been vaccinated, you will have it in a lighter form and you will remain out of hospital because that's what we ultimately need to do, clear our hospital beds for the really, really sick people.
1: And you don't want to go into hospital. I have, uh, I have a friend who's just, just got out of it, and he says, what quite an experience. Well, Andre, hopefully next week we'll have something a little more fun to talk about, uh, perhaps with, uh, with the, the light starting to lift uh, under this period of gloom.
7: Let's hope we do. This
1: Currency Focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Lord Peter Hain, Wow, Peter, it's been a while since we've had a chat, and I'll see you back on the Gupta case.
0: Yes, nice to talk to you again, Alec. I am because I've been frustrated about the fact that although I first raised this under parliamentary privilege in the House of Lords nearly four years ago, against President uh, Zuma and the Gupta brothers, and, of course, before that, Bell Pottinger. I asked then the British Chancellor, the finance minister, as we call it here, uh, to uh, pursue the banks especially, uh, to try and track down the international money laundering trail that the Guptas and the Zumas had left. And I was assured everything would be done, but, frankly, nothing has been done. And so I did follow it up with another speech on uh, on Thursday and another letter to the chancellor this time asking him to engage directly with the South African finance minister Tito Mboweni to see what the South African treasury needs from London, and hopefully also, because I copied in the U.S. Ambassador to London, uh, also Washington, uh, because we really have to try and get to the bottom of this international money laundering and and track the digital footprint that the Guptas left uh, down and see where the money's gone.
1: In your speech, you mentioned Magnitsky-style sanctions. Now, I know that that's got to do with Bill Browder and and his colleague Magnitsky, who died. But perhaps you could just unpack what you mean by that.
0: Well, I did did press the British government to introduce these uh, type of sanctions, which the United States introduced, Magnitsky was a a campaigner for this and what it allows, um, uh, it did previously under US law but now under British law, it allows uh, governments to impose sanctions not just for human rights abuses or genocide but actually for corruption as well and that has, has now happened as it did last year for the Gupta brothers in respect of the US, it's now happened for the UK, they did announce that they were putting the Gupta brothers on their sanctions list, uh, which I'd called for for years um, earlier this year. So that's progress. But still, um, what hasn't happened is there hasn't been the cooperation from the HSBCs, the Bank of Barodas, Standard Chartered, and the Bank of India uh, to cooperate fully with the South African Treasury, or for that matter, with the authorities here. Because this money went, as you know, by the billions of rents, Uh, through um, banks like HSBC and Bank of Baroda and Standard Chartered to Dubai or Hong Kong, to India. And I think it's it's incumbent upon the Indian government and the Hong Kong authorities and the ruler of Dubai to cooperate, uh, to uh, bring them to justice, the Gupta brothers to justice, and get the money back if there's any left.
1: Quite an interesting little aside here. Perhaps... Uh, if the group chairman of hsbc holdings mark tucker also happens to be the group chairman of discovery which is uh, working closely with government on so many other issues maybe they should he should be paying more attention to something that has cost the country dearly i don't know peter uh, maybe i'm i'm uh, just making mischief here but it, it seems like you, you you've worked so hard at this you need to open the door somehow
0: Yes, it's not been a question of opening the door. I did see really very senior people, including a, a member of the board uh, of HSBC, for example. They wanted to see me after I first named them in Parliament as being culpable and complicit in this money laundering. And the same was true of standard Chartered's Top brass came to see me um banker Baroda didn't but uh so that was true of mckinsey and, and and kpmg as well they all beat a path to my door but with the banks they came up with this thing oh well you know we closed the account some time ago and i said but you know you know what happened to this money you know where it went it left your johannesburg branch and it went to dubai your dubai branch or your hong kong branch or your london branch or all three, and you know what happened to it. Ah, yes, they said, but client confidentiality is something that we have to respect. And this is a point I raised at the Zondo Commission in November 2019 when I gave evidence before uh, uh, Deputy Chief Justice Zondo. And I I said then, this is a misuse of client confidentiality. People like you and I, Alec, um, and others – listening to this uh, interview, are honest citizens and we expect our um, our banking details to be kept confidential. Of course we do. But when you've got criminals, and in this case international criminals and money launderers, using and hiding behind effectively client confidentiality as they use the bank's international digital pipelines to transfer their money, it doesn't go in you know, in suitcases and brown paper packets, as uh, by the by the uh, the hundred rupee notes, um, uh, as it were, and piles of rond notes, in, in in the way that might have happened generations ago. It happens through the international financial institutions, as we know it did for the Guptas. So they know where the money's gone, and they wouldn't cooperate over tracking it down because they said they couldn't. And I just think that's a complete um. Misnomer. This using client confidentiality. It's it's an abuse, frankly, rather than a protection. International criminals should not be protected by the banks under that label. Honest citizens should.
1: Have you had much response to your speech from uh, the powers that be within Westminster?
0: Well, it's early days yet. Uh, uh, You know, the speech was made on Thursday afternoon. I wouldn't have expected a response yet, but I hope that I will get one, and I'll keep pressing uh, in questions in the House of Lords until I do, because this is a, a new request that I've made for the British Chancellor to cooperate with his opposite number, the Finance Minister of South Africa. I think it would be really... Um, serious. If, if he refused to do that. And I see no reason why he would or why that refusal uh, would occur. But let's see what his response is.
1: Well, thanks for being with us. Look forward to being back in your company again. Same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, from the team here at Biz News cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.